Well, you know, I, I was just going to say back in our day, they, we had the old pen maps, and, and a different color pen represented a different crime. And, and it was amazing how you could just pinpoint. It, it really does cluster up, and you know where you need to set your resources. I mean, that's, that's, their- that's exactly right. And, then, and, I, and I will do not confirm or deny. I just know that some people used to break into the commander's office when they were eventually got to pin maps and move the pins around. And, and screw everything up. But I'm just saying that that might have happened, but I cannot confirm nor deny that it, that it did. Well, well you can't that's your limitations has run out, so you're safe. <laughs> and those, oh, those this pins, is true. But those pins might have been in, a, in some type of shape, right? Like, right? <laughs> I'm just saying. Exactly. Oh, like, so, wait a minute. Are you talking about a penis symbol I'm on a I'm just saying, hypothetically, there was a lot of things going on back there. Ah, gotcha. Okay. So, so that was your way of telling the commander what he was a dick? <laughs> sometimes <laughs> so uh so then yeah steve you're correct we eventually got to the as we as and i only saw the the butcher block paper in transit because we didn't use pin maps the same way we used them in this way but once i went to the nypd and we moved over pre um the computerized statistics that we're talking about there were still pin maps and even even after the computers some people still did them manually, A, out of old habit, but B, also it's just a quick representation. I can move things around. Not everyone had computers or were in terminals at every desk like there are now. Everyone's got laptops now. So it was just a migration into it. It was a transition and a, and a, and a shift of, of the way of doing things. Um, and so what we would do is we would then look at these, these um, maps. And like I said, the seven major crimes, part one crimes, it's murder, felony assault, rape, um, robbery, arson. robbery uh, grand larceny, auto, um, and grand larceny, regular thefts over $1,000. And those are your seven majors that every police chief in the country is measured by their crime. All the misdemeanor crimes, you can have misdemeanor crimes going through the roof. You might have a quality of life issue, but you're not going to get dinged on your part one crimes uh, that all gets reported up to the FBI, right, through CSIS and and through the NCIC and the uh, UCR, the Uniform Crime Reporting, which is now shifting to NIBRS, which um, National Incident Based Reporting System. That's the one. That's the one. See, we got you for the analogies too, Morgan. You're, you're acronyms. good with those acronyms. 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 Analogy yeah, would well, be like NCIC is yeah, like, like is like right. The acronyms. So um, I can do this because Tommy's going to kick my ass the next time we all get together. I'll, I'll be gentle. <laughs> yeah, that's what my doctor it. said right before my colonoscopy. <laughs> that didn't go well either. Although I pass the flying colors, and I say that if you're over fifty, better get one. Yes, um, a PSA. If, uh, not a police uh, service area, but a no. public safety oh, announcement. Uh, a prostate uh, safety announcement. Um, hey, but but talk a little bit too about. Uh, um, I know I know some of these answers to this because I've talked to some NYPD guys, but. Going to a CompStat meeting, if you weren't prepared, you would rather rip your own eyelids off and walk through, you know, the sea than it was to get your ass reamed at one of these CompStat hearings. Is that kind of a fair statement? I would say the very early ones in 92, 90, well, 93, 94, 95 were wicked, wicked bad, like very confrontational. Human resources did not exist. It was all out berating and the worst possible managerial um, approaches on things, swearing, fistfights, people have lunged over tables. It was bad. 
Um, I think they eventually settled into a place where it was getting really good and really effective with levels of professionalism, but you also knew who was the boss. And, and when they spoke, you understood the commanders were in charge and you better get your act together. And you know what? They gave you a pass. I'd say they were fair. Um, you know, you came in new or, you know, you got a new emerging problem and you didn't quite get a handle on it yet, you know, but you come back next month, you better have a story. And I think what, what ultimately they were looking for was, are you trying? Like, are you doing something? Yes, I am. What's your plan? X, Y, Z. Okay. Sounds good. You know what? Did you ever think of doing A, B and C instead of X, Y, Z? No, I hadn't thought of that, Chief. Thank you. All right. Well, you got 28 days. Make sure you come back. Next time you come back, this problem's been eradicated. And then there was the philosophy, right? There's four steps in this. Accurate and timely intelligence, rapid deployment, effective tactics, and relentless follow-up. You can't eradicate this crime problem and then just walk away from it. And then and then two weeks later, it reemerges again. Like, you have to say, like, we got rid of it, and we're holding the lid on it, and it's never coming back. And so... I think they they went from insane and violent, wicked, <laughs> wicked meetings to it really got fair. It was tense and it was hard, but it was fair. And then they eventually got to the point where weak commanders who did not know what they were really doing, who had elevated too fast, started playing a game of gotcha. And I got a perfect example of that. The stop, question, and possibly frisk. And I use the word possibly because not every stop in question ends up with a frisk. Okay. But the stop in question that the NYPD took a beating for and that the Blasio paid out sums of money and violations and he changed policies. And Kelly and Bloomberg said, no, we're not deviating. Stop question and frisk works, right? Stop question, possibly frisk works. UF 250s is the report that you fill out. So NYPD jargon and vernacular is, you know, 250s. Um, but it's a Terry stop, Terry v. Ohio, right? Those are allowed to happen. They're constitutionally protected, and you're allowed to do that. And I think they, the, the, all police have a terrible PR um, arm, right? Nobody, they, they never have good PR coming out of the police. And the stop, question, and frisk. And so why do you stop and question and possibly frisk so many people? I'll tell you why. Because if you are engaging with the kids, and they're mostly kids, you know, young adults who are banging really hard out there and they are driving the quality of life and they are driving the violence in this community. If you engage with them, if you pretext them with, you know, they're loitering on the corner, they're, they're you know, motor vehicle violations and all these kinds of things, they actually allow you, they give you the legal authority to engage and find out what's going on. And you can inquire and you can decide to say, all right, everything's fine. Let me explain why I stopped you. You're a good kid. Go on your way. Or, yeah, I did see you urinating. I'm going to write you a urinating summons in the street. Or I stop you for urinating. I run you. You get a warrant. And the next thing I know, I just got a really bad guy off the street, right? All of this is good, solid, sound police work. Now, that being said, the the to prove my point that it eventually evolved to a game of gotcha is they didn't look at the numbers for what they were actually doing. They just counted the numbers. And so commanders were telling cops, I want 250s, I want 250s, I want 250s, I want you to stop guys, stop guys, stop guys, stop guys. 
They didn't take the time, nor did they have the knowledge to understand. No, you're stopping people for this condition in this location during these times, and this is what you're looking for. I don't want a hundred stops. I want five quality stops of people who are really in the mix. And the strategy, the results got lost in the strategy. The strategy was to reduce crime when people said, you know, commanders who are not competent are just saying, give me the numbers, give me the numbers, give me the numbers. They didn't even know what they were doing. They didn't even know what they were asking for. They didn't know why they were asking for. So the elevate the um, evolution that I saw from Comstat was wild and crazy, off the hook nuts, to really fair, but very hard and right and focused to a game of gotcha. And we're just commanders who didn't know what they're doing, just give me the numbers, give me the numbers, give me the numbers. And then they're sitting there going, why isn't crime going down? And it and it's kind of did and everything, but not to the point was, and now you're getting that bad rap for terrorized, quote unquote, terrorizing the neighborhoods. That's what they feel, that the cops are the terrorists, not true, but that's what they felt. And so that's where it got lost. You're stopping kids that you know you should not be stopping. Correct. You were stopping them for a day. You were stopping them for a day off. Like, you know, it became that kind of crazy roll call. You'd hear commanders or, you know, again, not for me in, in the detective squad, but but you'd hear guys in uniform patrol telling people, you know, don't come in tonight. You know, you used to hear that with a book of summonses, right? Don't come in unless you gave me five parkers. You know, now, now it was like, don't come in unless you stop 10 people. And then the, the bigger question I always used to think is, what, what are you stopping them for? These guys well, can't even what articulate that. there are that. 10 people to stop that are getting to the criteria right. that meet the test of reasonable suspicion for, like you say, Tommy, a Terry stop, person's place, time of day, you know, do we have intel that this area is a high crime area? You know, d- is he wearing a long overcoat and it's 100 degrees outside? I mean, give me something here. Just don't force me to go out and, and stop somebody for the mere act of stopping them so you can get a stat. That stat doesn't solve crime. The quality contacts you're talking about, Tommy, that's what solves crime is, is using your knowledge, skills, abilities, experience, and saying, I'm stopping this guy and this girl because, uh, and I can articulate nine different factors why. Well, and plus, plus you're being proactive versus reactive. You're, you're not waiting for somebody to call a crime in when it's too late. You're being proactive to find out who's on the street, you know, why are they out there? And like you said, the... These are tools in your toolbox that the Constitution has allowed. It's been reviewed and it's been approved. You just, it, when people overuse it, just like those commanders just wanted numbers, that's when it screws up a good thing for all the cops out on the street. And it screws it up for the community too. Like, and I know you, I know you mean that, but like, that's what we're there for. We're there for the community. And I, listen, I love police work and I'll, I'll chase bad guys all day, but if there's no crime, then there's no reason to have police officers, right? But there are, unfortunately. And then when you're, allowing that to override into and not be able to see like your blinders are, are, are on. You only see people in the community and not be able to separate the difference between the good and the bad. That's when it all goes South. And then this is, this, you know, when you start painting everybody with the same brush, that's when problems happen. You got to have the ability to discriminate between lawful activity, questionable activity, and obviously illegal activity. But the whole purpose of stopping people on questionable activity is to quickly determine whether or not it is illegal activity. And do you have any right to continue holding them? I mean, God dang, I'm starting to sound like a lawyer. (laughs) I, I will tell you from the detective side of the house, right? Like, I, I'm a believer in accountability. Like you should be accountable to what you do. Your cases should be, you should be held accountable for what's going on inside your case. So if the Lieutenant, if Tommy came to me and he wanted to know what was up with my case, I owe him that, 
you know, that to keep that case folder up and make sure it's right. But I have to tell you, though, not every idea that came out of Comstat was a good idea, right? You have a shooting in the neighborhood, and then you're going to do zero enforcement on traffic stops. So now you're going to penalize the people who lived in the community who were just on their way home with zero enforcement because somebody got shot there. Like, you turned the whole, it, it almost, again, like, I, I guess the terminology would be occupier, but it actually turned the community against you because, like, you were you were writing summonses to these people and the sergeants were like, that's what they want to come stat. And, and the whole thing got, it, it got turned around in a place that was crazy. I think, Tommy, and, and you tell me if I'm right, I think when you were in the squad, there were 25 of us. Uh, our biggest staffing was 37 between the squad and the rip. And we're all catching 400 and change a year? Yep, yep. 400 cases a year. This is one square mile. And what's a rip, Tommy? Uh, the robbery enhancement program, which eventually became the RAM, which is the robbery apprehension module. It's that little unit that I talked to you about before where I said there's one unit within the detective squad that's just dedicated to robberies. And then when the new police commissioner came in, then it became the BRAM. So you went from the RIP to the to RAM the to the BRAM. <laughs> yeah, like everybody had a new idea. You know what I mean? It, it, sounds, it sounds like the Sugar Hill Gang. I said a hip, maha, a hip to the hip. No. Well, I have, to, I have to tell you just real quick, sitting there as a guy who spent his whole career there, Watching them call the, the names and and it's just like, what difference does that make? Like, like. Well, we we took a quick break, a pause for the cause because I had to get something to drink. And for you folks drinking at home, yes, I'm joining you. Uh, I showed Tommy this. I'll show you guys too. It is my Chime Grand Reserve Ale, barrel fermented, bottled in 2018. It is four years old. I'm breaking it open. Ten and a half percent alcohol was uh, stored in French oak, American oak, and whiskey barrels, um, and it is. I'm telling you, freaking awesome. So not to, not to be outdone. I'm I'm using uh, uh, two week old Pure Life healthy water, purified water while we're on this because somebody's got to be the responsible adult here. I'm with you on that one. I'm off camera, so I, I'm using the uh, Delta little small bottle purified water that I found in my backpack before I go to Texas <laughs> so I don't get jammed up at TSA tomorrow. And you guys are probably wondering, why do I have a pair of pliers in my drawers? Because when you get bottles like this with the cork in there, they get so stuck, you actually have to, there we go. And here it comes. You're going to hear the pop here in a second. And here it goes. Ah, Nice. 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 Success. That's anyway, back for our regularly scheduled podcast. I am joining you in the drinking now because it is that time of day. So, hey, what we want to get into, a, a couple of the cases. Um, but, Tommy, you mentioned one that I want to start off with first, and it's the cold case you talked about. Because that that what you, when you said that right there, it's like the, one, the other stuff is like standard stuff. You talk to cops, yeah. But when you mentioned this cold case, I, I got goosebumps. I mean, yeah. it's like, damn. So, so I think I think this case is exactly what you're looking for when you say I want to do this work and how can I help? Um, and I'm not I'm not trying to get corny. I mean, there, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of cops that do the police work for very selfish reasons, and it's all about them and all about getting paid, and they get make money and they work on overtime, and they really don't have any. Mike was talking about empathy before, and whether you can be empathetic or sympathetic or whatever your life has, has presented you with, um, you're doing really 
God's work here. There's Vernon Gebereth. I want to pay homage to Vernon Gebereth, a mentor of mine, former Bronx commander of the um, homicide squad up there. And then he had a very successful career doing practical homicide investigation, consulting, all running classes all across the. I the have, country. I have two volume. I have two, uh, 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 two of his books sitting on my desk right now. Yep. I mean, I, that is the Bible. Yes, to, it is. For homicide investigations. And I have an autographed copy that Vernon signed for me that is cherished in my home, um, in my bookcase. Unfortunately, I'm moving in a couple of months and we started packing up some stuff. So I don't have it handily right now. But um, that being said, um, when he says we work for God, I mean, this is the type of work that um, really, really, really presents it. I, I want to give you an example. I want to set this up and then I'll get into the cold case squad. There were times as the commander of detectives, and I believe it was Daryl Baum. I believe that was the case that this actually happened. Um, and Daryl Baum is involved in the, the Damien Hardy and the violence back and forth. And he was Mike Tyson's bodyguard for a while. And this is all in the news. So if anyone wants to fact check me, they can do it. Um, I took a phone call as the commander of detectives. Sometimes the family calls and they're, you know, and they're trying to talk to the detective and they're not getting anywhere. And and then Michael called me up and he'll yell from the other squad, other side of the room and go, Lieutenant, you want to take this call from the victim's family? And, and of course I want to do that. And the first thing I say when I get on the phone is, you know, Hey, this is Lieutenant Joyce. I just want to say um, that I'm really sorry for your loss. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. When can I get his car back? And when can I get all his jewelry back? <laughs> Like, okay, so they don't really care that their victim, their 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 relative got killed, right? You get those cases. Don't get me wrong. However, even if sometimes the the victim is tied up in some bad stuff, there's still family members that are are living legitimate lives and trying to live honorably and and peaceably, and they call up and they're hurting and they're seeing that this scourge of this drugs and how the kid got caught up as this like ultimate failure for them as a family member or a parent. Right. And then like, yeah, I knew this was going to happen. I knew I couldn't control the kid. He was in the hood. He's running around with the gangbangers. He found something with them. He did it. And, and so you, you extend your sympathies to them and they say, thank you. I appreciate it. And we say, we're going to work really hard for them. And they accept that. And you do that. And then you have, the other victims, and I have two cases, Ashley Sims in the 7-9, and then this cold case, um, the victim in this case, his name is Isidore Pact. And um, like when you really touch these victims' families and you have long-term relationships that go way, way past the case and the trial. And I was taught that someone asked the question, when do you think a detective's job is done on a murder investigation? And you'll hear a lot of different answers, but there is only one answer. It's when the final appeal in the Supreme Court has been exhausted. That's when their job is done. Now, you might hear somebody say, well, when we make an arrest or, or when, after we go to trial. Um, I think you're muted, Morgan. Uh, I was because I was go. drinking and not, I said, no, that, <laughs> we're, I said, no, really, you're just getting started when you make an arrest or even if it goes to trial, you are just getting started. Exactly. But unfortunately, 
detectives who answer that way, they haven't been taught the right way. And they, it's, they don't know it better, right? They're just young and they're, you know, we're cycling, you know, people through. And yeah, but Tommy, but, but the, the problem with that when they're not taught correctly is then their, then their view of the world stops at that and they don't do the follow-up. They don't go the extra mile. They don't make the extra call. They don't talk to make, go to a conference, make that one extra conversation. It's like, no, I'm done. Time to move on to something else. And like you, and you're going to talk about it because I know what it did in your mind. I can already see it works on you day and night. You're sitting there. What else can I do? Who else can I call? What, what, what other step kind of like Comstat, what other thing can I do to move this case forward? It's never over. Yep. Yep. That's correct. And until the final appeal in Supreme court, it's over and it's done. However, you might be fortunate enough, um, unfortunate for the family, but fortunate enough to be able to have been a part of these people's lives is that, um, and you continue a relationship long after that is all done and you still talk to the, the families and, and in one case more specifically than the other, I do so one lasted for years and then we've all moved on. And, and then we have others too, um, with the, um, Quincell case, Mike is another one that pops in. We had a really strong relationship with the family there as well. And that's another good caper we could talk about for sure. There's plenty of them, Morgan. We might have to do volumes two and three, I'll be honest. Well, no, I think I think we're going to because I think the one case I want you to talk about now, let, let's talk about uh, the Holocaust survivor, the cold case. C c to me, that is – it's one of those – just what you were setting it up. I'm not going to steal your thunder, but just what you're setting up when you think of what somebody goes through only to have it stolen from them. It's, it's kind of like the soldier – who gets through war, who gets through all the stuff, sees his buddy blows up, he comes back home and he gets robbed and killed on a street corner, minding in his own business. So Mr. and Mrs. Isidore Pact um, were Holocaust survivors who, um, I want to say, um, I want to say, I don't, I don't remember what year. I, I, I will say it's been a while since I, I talked. But in the 40s, they eventually made their way back to um, New York City. And Mr. and Mrs. Pact came uh, without their only child. They had a child born in Europe, um, lost a child to the Nazis. And when they eventually reunited, they emigrated to the United States, but without their child. They then went on to have two more children, Miriam and Harry, was um, was their children, all, both born in America. For many, many years in on Claremont Avenue in the Bronx, in the confines of the 4-8 precinct, um, centralized Bronx. So if you're familiar, you look at a map, you look at the middle of the Bronx, um, right in that area, um, Isidore Pact, I want to say it was... 592 Claremont Parkway, I think it was. Um, again, this is this is 20 years ago, folks. So give me a little bit of slack on the memory, but I think I'm pretty good. And um, he's had a rule that the tailor shop haberdashery that he Isidore Pact was running was once it started getting later in the afternoon, no one was allowed to freely walk in. Uh, they were only allowed to lock the doors. They would remain open for business, but only with locked doors and only let people in that they were familiar with because they did still have customers who needed to come pick up their clothing, their tailor work, or, or continue to commerce with them. But there was a certain threshold that they were told that they were not allowed to um, open the doors for. Well, of course, a 17-year-old employee 
who ironically be, eventually became a police officer, and this is where the case has some interesting twists, um, is uh, he's 17 years old at the time, and he's a local kid, and he's working in the store, and he makes the mistake of letting these two guys in. They immediately push their way in. He unlocks the door. They push their way in. They hold everyone up in the front, and they take Isidore packed at gunpoint to the back of the store, and they say, open the safe, give us your money. And Isidore Pact is insisting that uh, he doesn't have access. There's nothing to steal. They're wasting their time. Don't you know you shouldn't do this? Uh, and one shot rings out, and um, Isidore Pact is shot and killed. And the two suspects flee, and they leave out the front door of the haberdashery. And this is 1971, and they turn right and they flee. And one runs towards the subway station. Hey, Tommy, uh, you. You probably mentioned this. T tell us again where it's at and what precinct it's at. Kind of geographically, tell us. Uh, the 48th precinct in the Bronx, uh, New York, um, probably around the center of the of the borough. Okay. So um, at that point, the investigation, you know, takes place. They interview the people inside the store. Uh, they interview a girl. Um, her name was um, Letitia Green. I think her name was. Yeah, Letitia Green. And there was some shoddy paperwork done by the detectives. Mm, I'm not going to go as far as saying why. I'm not really sure. Were they um, preoccupied, not competent? I, I don't know. But, but in reading the old – in 2004, we resurrect the case. Um, and I'll go through that. But there was shoddy paperwork. Uh, so there's a Letitia Green. We need to find her. And basically, the case goes cold within two or three weeks. No real progress on the case. And Letitia Green, and this is why I'm telling you now before I tell you how we get the case, and then I can go backwards. Um, Letitia Green goes missing right away. And so the detectives can't find Letitia Green, the witness, if you will. And um, the detectives are like, oh. Letitia must know a lot more than she's letting on. So now the hunt for Letitia in 1971 is the only thing that happens. And that goes completely cold, completely stale, and nothing gets done. So fast forward to 2004, and I get assigned to the cold case squad. And just to give some context for that, in a city of 35,000 police officers and a city of 8 million people, the, the cold case squad had a couple of supervisors and about 30 detectives. When I got there, there were over 8,000 open documented homicides that were unsolved. And that only went back to the previous 10 to 15 years. Even before that, there's even a lot more. And if you go back in history, there's tens and tens of thousands of hey, homicides. Tommy, the other reason I asked what precinct it was in, because you were in the 7-9. Um, this one's out of the 4-8. Um, how do you, how does it go about with the cold case squad? Do you try and keep it based upon the precinct or do you guys have, uh, even though you have authority throughout everywhere, you know, it's not like your authority ends because you cross into another precinct, but how is it, as you talk about the process, tell us about how is it that you with where you're at is getting a case from another precinct as part of this cold case squad? Yeah. So when you get to the cold case squad, you are citywide and you have the geographical area and the authority over all those cases with conferral of the local detective squad, but it is a citywide unit. And then each group 
is focused like my group was focused on the Bronx. There's another group focused on Brooklyn. But you could go anywhere and you could handle any case from anywhere based on certain things. I could have worked on Brooklyn cases that I was connected to through Mike. I would Mike would call up and say, look, we're not doing anything on this case. We don't have the time. The new cases are still coming in. You want to work on this case, I can give you the fill-in, and you guys can pick it up from there. That could have happened. But you have a focus, but not an absolute boundary. So when I got to the cold case squad, the area that I focused on was the Bronx. So everything that ever happened in the Bronx historically would fall under our authority. The the rules were very, very um, loose. If someone in the Queens team or the Manhattan team wanted to work on Bronx or Brooklyn cases, they could do so. It's all it's all on handshakes and and just doing the right thing, if you will. Yeah, but but if you're in the Bronx and somebody's in Queens, I mean, you still run into logistical issues because travel time, getting from one place to another, having to interview witnesses, it's like you want to go from the the Bronx to the you know to Queens. Why not just have somebody, you know, in Queens, you know, do the, do you know, handle the case to do the follow up? hundred percent, which is why I'm against centralization of homicide squads in cities, though. So, and that's another story for another day. That's hey, volume. Answer, answer that's one question. Volume. We had this question. I can't remember who it was from Murph. Was it from John Kufta? We're talking about there's only one place in New York or even around the world that has the word the in front of it. And it's it's like you got Queens, you got Brooklyn, but it's the Bronx. Bronx. Yeah. Why is it the the Bronx, like the Ohio State? I'll tell you why. Because Bronx, B-R-O-N-X, is the borough. But there was a family, B-R-O-N-C-K, Bronx. And they used to say, let's go up and see the Bronx. And then eventually, when the 1600s were the Bronx, who were from um, um, the Dutch, right? When they were in that territory, which was north of Manhattan, uh, they would say, let's go up and see the Bronx. And so when they renamed the borough Bronx, it became the Bronx. That's one story that I've always heard, and when I worked up there, that's what was told. Having never heard a story before, dude, that sounds like a good one to me. We're going to go with it. So (laughs) the the mystery, one mystery has been solved on this podcast. Back to our regularly scheduled podcast, if you're with us. That's That's a drink. That's a drink. drink. Hmm. Ah, okay. You know, you shipped us headsets. You should have shipped me one of those Chimay's as well, by the way. Oh, hey, look, I bought dinner and wine last time. What else do you want, you cheapskate? Yeah, well, which is very unorthodox because you were in my town. I should have bought, but you insisted. You're very generous. Morgan. We were not Thank in you. your town. We were in That's correct. We were Afton. In a, Afton. Afton. And I'm, we were in a neutral location. That's correct. True. Fair point. So, getting back to the case. Um, so. I get to the cold case squad. I triage a whole bunch of cases. I'm trying to get a lay of land on what the volume of work looks like. And I get what they call the police communication. It's a letter to the police commissioner that they shift through channels. And it finally ends up on my desk is where it belongs. And it's basically Miriam and Harry Pack, the children, demanding justice for their father. And they claim that nobody in the New York City Police Department, or for that matter, the criminal justice system in upstate New York, the New York State Police, nobody cares about them. And there's a series of letters written to the governor, Pataki, and and um, Cuomo, Mario Cuomo, not Andrew Cuomo. Um, and uh, just a series of outreaches by the family asking for somebody to look at this case. And 
I don't know why. Maybe they just got the brand new commander in the in the cold case squad who was full of piss and vinegar and really enthusiastic about this new assignment. But I said, okay, I'll call Miriam and I'll say, I'm here now. Can't change anything that's happened in the past. I don't know what happened. And what I always promised every single family that I ever spoke to in the cold case squad is I said, I cannot promise results. I can only promise effort. And I said, if you understand that, we're good. If you're demanding an arrest, I, I can't do that. And, and I won't make that promise. And it's unreasonable, especially with the time that's passed. And more often than not, the families were like, you know what? I believe you. And all we really want is hope. And we want someone to care. And the, the term never forget, right? Like we were saying never forget long before 9-11. Um, and Mike and I were together on 9-11. So that's volume five, by the way. So we have a whole bunch of stuff with that too. We're going to start a yeah. whole new podcast for you two guys. <laughs> hey, uh, tales of the NYPD, man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we, yeah, it's a, there's a lot of work. So, uh, so anyway, so this is door back. I get it. I talked to Miriam. She hits me and I'm like, man, the pain in this woman in 2004 for her father. And the story that they have on how they got to the United States and the fact that he was gunned down in this brutal, vicious manner over some nonsense robbery that the the guy didn't even have a lot of money. It's so unnecessary. And I'm like, we're going to do it. We're going to figure it out. And so I dig the case out. I find the case. I get it. And I read it. And I sit there and I say, wow, this whole thing probably revolves around Letitia Green. We just got to find her. And (laughs) Morgan, you're going to laugh when you hear this, but something was available to me and the detective Mark Tebbins in 2004 that were not available to the detectives in the 70s or even in the 80s for that matter. There's a little tool called public records and a search tool called Accurant. From oh, Lexus yeah. Nexus, which, by the way, maybe a wife of yours worked at Les- Lexus Nexus at one point. Is that is that the Nexus for how you met Lexus Nexus, Susan? No, can I tell you this case is the reason why I got a job at Lexus Nexus. Ah, okay. Because I told this story at IACP 2005 in Miami, dude. I was there. Why didn't you come hit me up? That was South Beach. Because I was on the beach partying. So was I on South Beach. The best, I think that's the best host Chiefs night ever held. Uh, Hey, Mike, Mike, you still there? (laughs) You doing all right, brother? (laughs) I'll I'll call you, Mike. If you were on video, you cheap bastard, we wouldn't have to keep asking if you were there. No, then you'd see me nodding off. You know what I mean? Tommy, hey, I got it. The lieutenant's at the stage. Go ahead, sir. This is is like the first rookie that gets in the police (laughs) car with you. And you say, do not touch the radio. Do not talk. Do not touch anything in the car. Just sit there and shut up and don't say a word. The lieutenants, the the bosses at at NYPD, the lieutenants, they solve all the crimes. So I'm 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 in. I want to intrigue. I'm intrigued to see how this goes. Go ahead. So so we have, and I, I'll tell the story about how I got my post law enforcement job. But so I I immediately jump on the tool 
And Mark Tebbins and I are sitting there and we're running these queries in a product called Accurate LexisNexis's public record search tool. And what we come to realize is that if, when you look at the reports, Letitia's name is spelled different ways all the time. Letitia, L-E-I-T-H, L-E-T-H, L-E, you know, all of the variations of that. And then add the green, there's a green without an E, with an E, with an E, without an E, right? It's a complete disaster. But, and I'm, this is not a plug for the product, but this is a product, this is a plug for a good detective who knows how to work computers and realizes that the misspelling and, and just do the work and so Mark Tebbin sat at the computer and plugged in all the different variations. And then he finds a DD5, which is the follow-up informational report for Detective Division number five, report number five. And that's not sequential. That's the, the, the report number. Um, he sees that there's information that she may have fled to Georgia. So then we focus our queries for all the variations of spellings for Letitia Green in Georgia. And we come up with the Letitia Green in the right age group. So she's like now 50 years old who lives in Augusta, Georgia. Hey, when you said fled to Georgia, do you think the, the information was your feeling was she fled because of this case or another yes. reason? Yes, for this case, because okay. we think she was at risk some if she fled she's at risk of something she lived in the apartment above the tailor shop oh okay she's looking out the window at just the right time to see the perps flee you know what she really was right she's the setup and the lookout so you kind of read the case and you know that's where they're going. And then like the detectives are like, we need to talk to him. You know, after she said, I don't know anything, but this is what I saw. And the detectives are like, we don't like, we need to follow up with her because her story's not making, like there's some gaps in it. And then all of a sudden she goes off the face of the earth. It's like, you know what's going on, right? So, okay. So Letitia Green, we determined she's the critical component of finding this, this, this perpetrator. And oh my God, I, I, the name of the perpetrator escapes me, but I'll, 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 um, it's I'll not important. It. He's a shit bag. Yeah, he is. Yeah, and they, he died. They, they don't deserve airtime anyway. We, we, we try not to give shit bags airtime. Yeah. So, so Letitia Green, Mark Tebbins finds Letitia Green in Augusta, Georgia that fits the age group. And we're like, could this be? What do you think? So we literally played di dollar, um, dial for dollars, right? So there's about five or six different associations to Letitia Green and a bunch of different addresses and a bunch of different phone numbers. And all we do is call and say, hey, how you doing? This is Detective Tebbins. This is Lieutenant Joyce uh, from the NYPD's Cold Case Squad. We're looking for Letitia Green. And I'd say about the fourth or fifth phone call, someone says, yeah, I know Letitia Green. I'll have her call you right back. So she calls back and we don't know if it's her. And we say, hi, Letitia, how are you? Thanks for calling us back. We appreciate it. She's like, yeah, no problem. She's like, um, we're like, we want to talk to you about a murder that took place on Claremont Parkway in the Bronx, 1971. And she goes, I don't know nothing about that. And she hung up. That's and your, I, as a trained investigator, that's my first clue that she does know something about oh, this. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> so I turned to Detective Mark Tebbins and his partner, Pablo Moss. And I said, you guys got golf clubs? 
because you're going to Augusta, Georgia. And hopefully after you get a really good statement from this witness, the local cops will get you on Augusta and you can play a round of golf. Play at the Masters. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. So that was the trade-off. I negotiated with them that if they can get a statement that's productive for this investigation, that they can spend an extra day down there and play a round of golf. Oh, my God. What a good – you are I, such a good guy, Tommy. I am such a good guy, and I don't think I don't think my detectives really ever appreciate it. Mike, Maybe now they do. Mike, is that's Tommy a good guy? What were you saying about Tommy when he wasn't there, when you it was just you and I on the uh, call? Best boss ever. There you go. See? That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> and that's actually what he said. So, anyway. <laughs> that, yeah. So, so anyway, so um, Pablo and Mark go down. They go get Letitia. They bring her in with the local authorities helping out. They were great guys, guys and gals. And um, Letitia is kind of playing the, you know, the two, two foot shuffle, whatever you want to call it. And, um, you know, she's playing the game, which we've seen hundreds and hundreds of times. And finally, an Augusta, Georgia detective slams his hands on the desk and he goes, listen, Letitia, either you're on the bus or you're in front of the bus. And I don't think these guys came down to New York for some nonsense to come down here. So you need to get on the bus. I have never heard that. I like that saying. Either you're yeah, on the man. bus or you're in front of the bus. And and she just turned around and goes, all right, I get it. And she goes, that was my boyfriend who did the robbery. And I know exactly who he is. And here's his name. And it's coming to me, and I, I, I'll respect the fact that we shouldn't name his name because he shouldn't get any credit for anything in his life. He did die in jail, but I'll get to that. Well, that's um, good. But yeah, yeah no, no recognition for shitbags, but you know. He died a very painful death of cancer while waiting trial on this case. Wait a minute. So, <laughs> Was it the same thing you asked that that one guy to die of that we told you about that we were meeting with the San Diego, that New York cop that went bad, that was arrested? You said, oh, you that guy. Yeah, death. yeah, yeah. Michael oh. Dowd. He I should know. die of, he should die cancer. of, yeah, ass cancer as well. So. <laughs> I mean, if you have an enemy and you want them to suffer, I mean, ass cancer ass is probably pretty the way bad. to do it. Yeah. Yeah, Thankfully, so. I had my colonoscopy. I'm all clear. So that won't be me. Well, that's good to hear. And I, too, myself have been on regular um, uh, colonoscopies, which is another story. That's volume 10 because I got good I got good colonoscopy <laughs> stories, too. And to all our listeners, we're sorry you had to listen to all that part right there. <laughs> so um, so anyway. Oh, my um, God. Who knew this was going to be a colonoscopy show? Anyway. Um, we can go. Listen. You think Rogan has got the friggin' thing on podcast? You guys, if you bring enough of the right people, we can take these stories all over the place. Anywhere you want to go, we can go. Maybe you you should explain to them what the turnarounds in the 7-9 squad were like. Oh, (laughs) Oh, the turnaround parties, we had those too, but I'm sure it paled in comparison to Uh, NYPD. Yeah, we have a lot of crazy stories. And thank you, Steve, yes, earlier for pointing out that statute of limitations are expired on most of them. So, yes. Well, the so, only thing that, wait a minute. The only thing that usually doesn't expire is murder. You're, you're not going to admit to that, are you? No, no, no. Everything's short, but everything is done better. <laughs> um, so, uh, we get Letitia. We get the right statement from her. We get the named perpetrator. 
Now we have to come back to New York, do the you know the records checks, and try to find this person. Fast forward to wait a minute. Um, well, time out for a second. This is I don't want to say this was too easy, but when you said that that it was like shoddy paperwork, was it that they just didn't interview her? Uh, persistently enough, or was she, was even even if they had done a very good, aggressive, persistent interview, would she not have admitted it at that time? Do you think? I, I think I think the way of the the way it was in in 1971. I think they were. Um, I'm sure they were diligent. Um, Just more checking the boxes. But yes, but there was also a lot of gaps. And I talk about this very fondly about the Comstat process and what levels of accountability. Um, that they did implement that made cases so much more thorough and so much tighter. Um, I'm sure the prosecutors appreciated it. Um, so there were always a lot of gaps in older cases. Um, you know, and that's why when you got a case folder, you everything was in that case folder, right? Way before electronic case management systems and, and all that. And that's why every single piece of paper, Every matchbook cover, every napkin had some scribble in it. I mean, there were literally old cases that had handwritten notes on a napkin that were tucked in the pages. And if you went through that case folder and you didn't read that napkin, you lost, you you missed the whole thing. That was in Vernon's book, too. He talked about one time where they had written it on paper. I can't remember what kind of paper, but it was the kind that aged as it aged. You couldn't read it anymore, and it's like— but that's the importance of when you do a case review of a cold case, you got to go back and look at everything, collect everything, look at everything. You and I'll talk later. I want yeah. I'll pick your brains offline about a cold case yeah. I'm working on actually down in Roanoke right now. But anyway, yeah. that was that, that was digression. Uh, number seven, back to our regularly scheduled podcast drink. Go I, ahead. I don't, I don't want to break Tommy's uh, flow because he's flowing now like a, uh, a big river. So I don't want to break his flow, but I will tell you, like, managing the cold cases in the 7-9, there were 400 open ones just in that command alone that dated back to the 40s. 1.1 square miles, and you had 400 open cases? They just were open, right? And they kept them in the basement next to the boiler room. So when the basement (laughs) flooded, no, no, but but this is the importance of it, right? You talk about a case management system now. Like, my kid on the job, everything is on the computer. Everything is on his phone, right? Everything that they do is digital. But, man, when they flooded the basement, we used to have to take out the uh, case files and leave the papers out to dry, like individual sheets, so that they wouldn't stick together. Yep. I went, and I, went to, I went to the fifth precinct that was built in 1885 or something, and I went to look for an old homicide, and I go into the basement like Mike's talking about, and this building is from the 1880s. And the guy is sitting there, and they're still sho- – this is no bullshit. In 2004, they're still shoveling coal into a burner, right, for heating the building. And and I'm going – I go, look, I'm looking for these boxes from 1950, 1960, and such like that. And where are they? And I need to – because I got a lead on a case from somebody who's incarcerated that they said when they were a kid. And the guy's like 90 years old now, and he wants to talk. And the guy goes, you see that, you see that burner right there, the heater? I go, yeah. He goes, we feed that coal to heat the building. He goes, sometimes we run out of coal. Oh, my God. Don't tell me. Oh. And I said, couldn't you burn anything but the homicides? He goes, we burned what we had. And I said, are you kidding me? And, I, and, and like, I don't know if it's true or not, but I'm leaning more towards it's true than it's not. Mike, 
I know you've never heard that story from me. Do you doubt anything that I just said? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it's crazy. It was crazy. You can't make up the things that really happened. This is the NYPD for these years and all the years back and all the stories. When they say the truth is crazier than fiction, you couldn't yeah, create truth make it up. Stranger than, but but that wasn't NYPD. That was well, but that was that an NYPD employee? Or was that just some building employee that decided to use the homicide cases as fuel? No, an NYPD employee. They used to call them the broom. So they were probably someone who was like a danger to himself and others. So they said, "Don't go out on patrol. Keep the keep the building clean, and you're fine." You know, you know, if you really think about it, right? God forbid you had a fire in one of the station houses that were busy that had the homicides stored in them. You know, those old homicides, they went up in smoke. I mean, again, we talk about Pearson Place, right, Tommy, where they used to keep all of the stolen property. They had a flood there. All crime scene stuff destroyed. You know, this this reminds me of um, I on vacation one time, believe it or not, I ran into some uh, two ladies that were police officers with the formerly known as the Royal Ulster Constabulary, but the police service of Northern Ireland, when they transitioned to a peacekeeping force versus a paramilitary force, they had so many unsolved homicides and cases, but guess what? Still members of what was called PIRA, the provisional IRA, went in and blew up evidence locations and laboratories to destroy all the evidence. And to your point, Mike, when that stuff's gone, it's gone. There is no, I mean, you, you don't, unless it's been digitally saved somewhere, there is no getting back a single scrap of paper that has the suspect's name on it that goes up in flames in a boiler somewhere. Yeah. That's crazy. So let's get back to the case. So we got Letitia. Was, I'm sorry, digression number, what was that, eight? It doesn't matter. Hey, Time for a drink. Up. Here here we go. Go. I'm going to get you guys membership in AA after this interview. I'm sipping, Steve. I'm sipping. sipping. <laughs> um. So we got Letitia Green. We got her statement. We're in good. We got a named perpetrator. Now we got to look at the other witnesses we have. And the rest of them were not so great. But remember that kid that opened the door? Yep. Okay. Let's go back to him. Well, hey, hold on a second. When you say you have a named perpetrator, obviously one of the first things you would have done at that point is find out, is the dude still alive? Yes, and he was. We did, we did like I, I did say before, but I'll repeat for the listeners. Um, we did all our computer checks. We tried to figure out where we think he's located. We found him in Stamford, Connecticut. Um, he's alive and well and available, um, and he was not incarcerated as much as we can tell. So he was available to do the crime in 1971, which is a com critical component. So just because she's naming him, you got to say, was he incarcerated at that time? Or was he living in the Bronx at that time? Was he, you know, so basically was, like if you're in prison, that's a pretty good alibi that you could not have committed that crime. Yeah, we well, some cops of some places have figured out a way to do that anyway. <laughs> so so, yeah. Um, um, anyway. Good. So let's get back. Letitia Green named perpetrator. We 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 are comfortable that we know everything there is to know about him, but we're not ready to go apprehend him. We got some work to do. So let's get to work. We interview all the witnesses. Everyone else is pretty weak on being able to identify. But the one great witness was the kid who opened the door. So we not, we find him. He lives in Queens now. We knock on the door. He's a grown man. He's in his 40s, 50s. And he says to us, you guys detectives? And we're like, yeah. He's like, what can I do for you? 
And we said, we want to talk to you about an incident that occurred in 1971. And he put his head down. And he said, I knew this day was coming. Come on in. And I said, okay. He's a Federal Reserve police officer. And he says to us, I knew those guys. I knew them to be the boyfriend of the girl upstairs. So that's why I thought they were friendly. And I let him in. And he shot and killed Mr. Pact. And I've held this remorse for all these years. And I never said anything. And I told the detectives at that time I didn't know who they were. But I really did. Oh, wait a minute. Okay, so... He wasn't involved in it, but he he but he knew when it happened who Correct. they were. Right. And part of his becoming a police officer was this is he he was too embarrassed to go back and say, I actually know, and I shouldn't have let them in, but I did, and I caused his death. He took that blame on himself, but he thought the best next best way was to become a police officer. Well, that's bullshit. If you want to become a cop, then the first thing you do is you come clean and you say, I know who did this. I agree. However, I I, I don't know what goes through people's heads, right? Yeah, well, I get, I, get I, 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 I get it. But at that point, if you know, you look, we'll, we'll save the story for later. But anyway, but but yeah, he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't get to get out of this that easy. The guy has material information on Correct. a homicide, and he withholds it intentionally. Correct. Because the minute you said that, I knew this day was coming, it told me right away, this right. isn't one of those things like, oh, hallelujah, we're going to solve the case. It's more like, oh, shit, um, I got to come clean now. So, oh, Mark Tebbins. Hold up. We're good. Sorry. I'm, I'm guessing there was a, uh, um, a hot dog, a hot dog on the grill. That uh, <laughs> or a burger on the grill that uh, hit oh my, my God, Are you burning your house down? You're moving out of it in too much. You're going to burn it down before you go. So, uh, so anyway, so Mark Tebbins is prepared for this witness with two six pack photo arrays. Right, we have the we have the black and white photos from 1971, the last known photos of the two offenders. We actually found an associate, but that associate was dead already. And so we only have one outstanding perp, and the other one is dead. So we can close the case on a exceptional clearance, but we want to lock up and arrest and, and hold accountable the other offender who we know to be alive. We then take the two six-pack photos. We go through the process. We say, sir, we're going to show you a series of photos of those photos. We'd like to see if you recognize anybody. If you do recognize them, tell us who you recognize and where do you know them from? Now, for your listeners who are not law enforcement, you don't say stuff like, do you see the killer here? Is he is the killer number two? Like, that's not how it's done. The way it's done. Although, wait a minute, Tommy, you know and I know, statistically speaking, if you want the good chance of picking who the killer is, cops usually put them in slot number two or number five. I don't know anything about psychological <laughs> theories behind identifications. I can neither confirm nor deny. Take five minutes to look at this picture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, really, take five minutes. Really, take five minutes and to look, look at, at number two and tell me what you think. Yeah. No, honestly, I know that those games have ha that that does not serve anybody well. But um, there are games. Now that being said. Mark Tebbins, being the ultimate professional that he is, 
He hands over um, the two six-pack arrays one at a time, and he sits there and he says, you know, do you recognize anybody? And if you do recognize anybody, tell us where you recognize them from. And he immediately identifies both perpetrators. He did not waffle. He did not even waste any time. And, and again, I can introduce that into court as my opinion. The jury will probably be told to disregard that. But for us as detectives, we knew he knew exactly what was going on. He wasn't bullshitting. And he could identify those guys, you know, all these years later. And, um, you know, 30-something, 35 years later. Um, blah, blah, blah. So we got two IDs. He signs both photo six-pack photo arrays, and we're good to go. All the other witnesses have been identified. Nobody can really identify. They put their pieces of the puzzle together. We go to the prosecutor's office in the Bronx. We sit down and go, here's the case, and they authorize the arrest. They say, yep, I will prosecute this case with what you have based on those girlfriends' statement, the identification from the witness, uh, a couple of other pieces that you put together. It's a nice little case. Not the greatest case in the world. It's 30-something years old, but it's it's worth um, pursuing. Go out and arrest the guy. I am not bullshitting you. We say, okay, where's he living? He's living in a shelter, a men's shelter in Stamford, Connecticut. We're like, shit. We call up the, the Stamford Police Department. And we say, look, what's the deal with the shelter? Do you guys know anybody over there? And, Mike, you're going to really appreciate this part. We're going to say, um, do you know anybody over there? Can you tell us if this guy's got a bed there? And the Stanford, Connecticut detective says to us, no, we don't, we don't work that way here. And we're like, wait, what do you mean? And he's like, no, we're not allowed to know who the bedmates are in the shelter for this exact reason. I was like, what reason? I want to, I, I want to know if the guy's in there or not because I'm not going to drive all the way up there back and forth every day if the guy hasn't been there in, in months. But his last known address, <clears throat> like from six months ago, is Stanford, Connecticut, this, this men's shelter. And the guy says, you're going to have to come up with a subpoena. or whatever. And I'm like, Mike, what? You know, you know the deal, Morgan. You know it. Steve, you, you know. Like, we, we go, yeah. All right, maybe on paper. They're not, but, like, you don't know anybody over there that can give us a wink and a nod? We're not talking about a jaywalker here. We're right. talking about a first-degree felony murder robbery suspect. Right on, right on. So I said, okay, we'll play the game. So I say to Mark, Grand Pablo, let's go up to the Stanford. Let's get a lay of the land. Let's drive around. Let's see what's going on, where to place. Because what we think is what they do is everyone sleeps there at night, but they throw you out by 8 a.m., and they bring allow you to come back after 6 p.m. So no one's there during the day. So you want to get them when they're all filing out or when they're all coming back in. So let's look to see what places where you can get breakfast, where can you eat, where do you hang out, where the drug spots are, whatever it is they do, they do, right? So we'll go drive around. And while we're doing that, we'll figure out what doorways, where we're going to sit, and we'll come back the next day or two and do the surveillance to, to apprehend this guy. It's like three o'clock in the afternoon. I'm not shitting you. And lo and behold, we pull up to just start. Okay, here's base. We're going to start from here. And like, who's that guy standing out in front? I said, Mark, I swear to God, I think that's the fucking guy. And Mark goes, there's no way. Tommy, there's no way in a million years. There's no way. And I go, dude, he's 
standing right in front of the shelter right now, and I'm looking at the picture, and now granted it's 40 years old, but I'm saying, I think that's our guy. And Mark goes, I came out, and I go to him, hey, Leroy, or whatever his name was, and I think it was Leroy, and he says, no, I'm not Leroy. And we're like, oh, man, maybe not. And, and then Mark, in his infinite wisdom, names a relative of Leroy's, and he says, no, this is not about you. This is about blah, 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 such and such, your relative. He got hurt. And the guy goes, what happened to him? And he goes, well, you are, are you Leroy or not? Are you his next of kin or not? He goes, I am. I was like, eh, gotcha. Bada bing, bada boom. <laughs> Way to go. Yeah, I, just want to so highlight, then, I just want to highlight, you see who solves that case, right? The detective. The, the detective, of course. So then... So then we're in the car and we get on I-95, driving on I-95 with the, with the Joker in the back. And we're passing exit after exit after exit. And we leave Stanford. We go into Westfield and then we're in Fairfield. And, and the guy goes, hey, where are we going? And he goes, oh, did we not tell you? We're New York City police officers. And we're going to the Bronx. And he's like, oh, shit. And we're like, yep, yeah, that's right. So while we're on our drive, I need you to think about some things. And don't think, after all these years, we don't have our shit together. So you can wallow in that while we make our way back to the Bronx. And he goes, is this about that robbery like in 1999? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> and we're like, no, but we'll talk about that too. <laughs> we had some. Uh, anyway. I had a case. Anyway. Real quick, real quick divergence. Had a case one time. I'm interviewing a guy, and I'm I'm talking to him about a, a copier that's stolen. Secret Service is involved in the case. They're photocopying money. And I said, and I'm talking to this guy. I said, you got that feeling in gut? You know, you want to tell me about it? He goes, you mean the bank robberies? And yep. without missing a beat, he goes, yep, that's what it was. I was talking about a burglary at an office store. We ended up clearing five bank robberies. Got that right. Happens um, all the time. But back, it- back to our regularly scheduled podcast. That's one more drink. Yeah. All right. There it is. Um. So this guy is obviously good for something. He's good for a lot of things. He actually had a warrant. We, we found an old warrant that was never vacated, but it would never be enforced. So we used that um, as the ability. That, that gave us the probable cause um, to put him in handcuffs and detain him as opposed to him voluntarily returning back to us. Did he ever lawyer up? So, yeah, so that's the thing. And I don't remember the law. There was laws that bounced around that. It was Minnick versus Mississippi. Basically, that's yes. that's that's one that basically got down to that said when they invoke the lawyer, it's for every case, not just the case you're talking exactly, about. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So and I don't remember the exact nuances of that, but he he never admitted to being there and doing it which actually worked okay for us because when we have someone known to him versus someone who's just identifying him, putting him there, it worked out and it was fine. We proceed with the case. We make the arrest. um, And probably one of the most important and fulfilling phone calls I made was to Harry and Miriam Pact, telling him that the arrest has been made. He's incarcerated. He's been prosecuted. He'll be going to the grand jury in a couple of days. Um, We'll get a, We'll get an indictment. Um, we're not worried about getting the indictment. And then he'll go to trial. And it's, the trial is not going to be easy because of the time and the witnesses. And, you know, they'll challenge the testimony. And I think they were happy 
that he died in jail um, and that he never saw another free day. But I think they missed um, not having their day in court to having the conviction to confr- right. and, yeah. and confront them and confront them. So did he mm-hmm. die awaiting trial? Yes. All right. We never we never went to trial. What, what's your feeling, though? At, at that point, he was was Letitia solid enough that she would have come through on the on the trial? Yeah, she lived a um, a, a much better life in Georgia than she probably would have lived in, in the Bronx. So she was a productive citizen down there. Um, still a little bit in the game, if you will. But, you know, because she, she was squared away she, in terms of, you know, not cooperating with the police kind of thing. But but she didn't have any criminal history to speak of. Uh, nothing that would have um, thought that she was completely the enemy on the other side of righteousness. So uh, I think she would have stood up and she would have been fine. Uh, and then Vasquez, again, uh, I, I do realize the contempt and I share it with you, Morgan, that we have for our federal police officer witness. However, he also did leave a very productive life. And so I think he was um, going to be very, very strong. So you lost me there for a second. You talking about the guy we were talking about that uh, I texted you about? Yeah, the the federal the police officer. Okay. The one that opened the door and let the, the shooters in. Oh, that one. I'm sorry. I was thinking of the other guy that I texted you about, and you called him a skell. I'd never heard oh, that. That's, yeah, skell. <laughs> yeah, I'd never heard that term before. By the way, tell us what a skell is. A skell is a um, – in the transit police, we had um, – that was the term for the homeless persons who were of like you're homeless and you're in the subway. There's plenty of people uh, in the subways that are homeless, but when you needed to tell somebody that they were not showered and had not had a lot of uh, treatment and they were, you know, had parasites and, and bugs. And I mean, some of these homeless people have lived and not showered in years and years and years so a scowl in the subway system in the housing is to try is to tell is the, it's the one word term that I can use to tell you that this guy is really funky. He's probably got diseases. Uh, he's got parasites and bugs and, you know, and all sorts of things on him. Um, so that's the differentiation between a homeless person who's getting fairly decent care, getting showered and medical treatment and staying fairly healthy. Versus someone who's completely disregarded all hygiene, all nutrition, all medical care. And so that's just the terminology. And then you kind of, and then that became the terminology for someone who's just, you know, a dirt so I got to tell you. So when we were down at the San Diego, uh, Southern California gang conference, Murph and I were down there. Um, and the guys down there are just fantastic. So we meet this guy. I don't want to mention his name anymore because, like I said, I don't want to give this guy airtime. Former NYPD guy, did 14 years for him and his partner working with a drug gang. And this guy, Murph, you, you were there. He approached us. Mm-hmm. He goes, oh, he, he heard about our podcast. He goes, oh, guess what, guys? I am podcast gold. He told us that. He goes, I am podcast gold. And I'm like, what the, this is before I really knew his story. I said, what the hell are you talking about? And then he starts telling his story. And Murph, I got to tell you, my freaking jaw just hit the floor. Yeah. It, it, a guy that he wanted to come up and talk to everybody so bad. And once everybody back in the green room found out who he was, you know, other than the host who had to be nice to him, 
they just turn you back on. I hadn't, I didn't want to say good morning, goodbye, kiss my ass or anything. I have nothing to do with you, man. When we had our, we had our event that evening, did you come? Yeah, you were down, you came down with us to that pizza place, right? I thought about, mm -hmm. he, he was getting ready for an Uber or a Lyft to the airport. And I thought I saw his bag. He left his bag there and I thought, Oh, what if I just hide his bag, you know, and he can't find it, but I'm, I'm a good guy. I didn't do anything like that. I thought about it, but I didn't uh -huh. do anything. Cause that's one of the guys that you and I talked about Murph's like, you know what? We've talked to uh, perps, uh, you know, bad mm -hmm. guys and, and, uh, not, not a bad girl yet. We're working on that, but people who have done some bad stuff, but turned their life around. But I, I have no use. The difference on this one though, was, uh, uh, Tommy and Mike, you guys appreciate this. If he was truly repentant, it'd be one of those things. Hey, here's a cautionary tale. Here's something you should learn. This guy reveled in the fact that he was this bad cop, that he was this bad guy. He enjoyed it. And I'm like, well, Fuck you. Yeah, there he was no... laughing about it. He thought it was hilarious. Yeah, he thought it was hilarious. Was he the guy who, I don't want you to mention his name at all. We'll get it offline for sure. But was he the guy that was with Dowd? No, it was Dowd okay. himself. We talked to Dowd. Oh, it was Dowd himself. Okay, okay. Yeah. And okay. the I know who you're talking about, the other guy, because somebody else said, hey, you ought to talk to this guy. And I'm like, once I saw he was connected with the first guy, I said, not a chance. No, he, they're both POSs in a big, big way. They, Which, that is an acronym that stands for piece of shit. Uh, we, we will define that for you. Hey, Mike, look, we kind of cannibalized uh, some of the time, but we want to talk about with you with a case that you, like Tommy, found interesting. Tommy, what did I find interesting? Tell me. <laughs> um. I, I I think Mike was even keeled, and you never knew that he was more enthusiastic on one case than another case. Uh, I think he hit them all equally, uh, passionately, and with competency. Um, Let's there's some good, wait, this is yeah, wait, I, there's a good story, Mike. You got a great story, even though the guy didn't die, and how he did not die, and the crew that that hurt him. Why don't you talk about what about Jeremy Deloitte? Yeah, so. Jeremy Deloitte was hey, a. Have uh, you guys noticed this though? Still to this day, Tommy is giving direction and guidance to one of his detectives to say, "Hey, how about this?" He didn't tell him to talk about it. He just said, "Hey, how about this one? I think this is a good one." Yeah, so I was going to go down the cold case trial because I have one that I like. But since Tommy oh. told me to do this one, oh, then I'll just please do like. Let's do cold case squad, right? So I couldn't really, you know, do the cold case stuff, but you know. Um, but well, let's yeah. talk about now. Let's hold on. Time out. We're going to call a audible here. Let's talk about the case you want to talk about. Tommy kind of gave me an idea, but you obviously like this cold case. Which one is it? So we had a so my partner in the squad. When I finally got over there and ended up working with him, he was working a homicide from um, nineteen eighty nine, and what they had done is, uh, and again, I'm a baby on the job. Uh, eighty nine. There was a a guy who was abducted, we learned later, who's abducted from the Bronx, brought to Brooklyn, brought down in the basement of a house on Madison, uh, Madison uh, Street, and they cut his head off with a chainsaw. And in the middle of cutting his head off with a chainsaw, the chainsaw ran out of gas. Oh, oh that's going to suck. Oh, yeah, so then they had to hack out his head. Now, they did this in front of a whole bunch of witnesses. So why, why did they kill him in the first place? Yeah, so what happens is it's... Uh, Can I just say something before we go? I know the story. I know the caper. I'm involved. Like, Mike, you got... Like, I was there for in the middle of it. It kind of... This is a great story. This is definitely the right story to tell. So what happens is um, there's a, a pretty 
well-known established drug dealer from the neighborhood. He ends up uh, having a package uh, ripped off. And I guess this other crew of drug dealers told him, they said, hey, even show up with the money or show up with the person's head who committed the homicide. So throughout the investigation, what we learned is they drove up to the Bronx, right? This drug dealer with two other people. And all these witnesses are identified. And they abduct a squeegee man. So for the folks who are listening who might not know what a squeegee man is, back in the late 80s, early 90s, you had uh, folks that would uh, come over and scrub down your windshield. Um, you know, for a better term, most of the people used to call them bums. They'd be panhandling. But they would be the squeegee people. So long story short is Gregory Ross is up there. Gregory Ross is former military, fell on bad luck, does heroin. So he's down on his luck. He's at the squeegee, and he just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. He gets abducted at gunpoint, and they drive him back down to Brooklyn. Now, you have to picture this. Um, when this homicide occurs, the building is a brownstone. The basement of the brownstone is used as a shooting gallery for the drug addicts. So it's packed. It's packed. There's people outside on the street. There's people in the basement, the whole nine yards. The car pulls up. They got this guy. They take him out of the car. His hands are bound. He's got a hood over his head. They drag him around the back of the building, and they put him in the basement, and they make everybody leave. The three guys, the main drug dealer, I won't even mention his name, but the main drug dealer um, and his crew now uh, proceed to beat this guy. Again, remember, he's innocent, right? At the end of the day, he's truly innocent, right? And they're beating him, they're beating him. And next thing you know, people, and when I say people, there's anywhere from five to 15 witnesses that are actually looking through the cracks, through the basement windows, watching this whole thing. They get the chainsaw and they start the chainsaw, broom, broom, it starts. And through his head, they start to go right through the jawline. Um, across the neck. The pictures are absolutely, you know, offline. <laughs> you would be shocked. Um, and then it runs out of gas. So they send this young kid out over to the gas station to get more gas with a little red can. He comes back because the gas station on Troop Avenue was closed, so he can't get any more gas. And they proceed to chop the rest of his head off with, a, uh, with an axe, like a small hatchet. They come out of the basement all of the people are standing there and they have his head in the bag, in the brown bag. And they just say, you know, they just hold it up in the air. They get in the car and they drive away. They pay these two crackheads. At the time, it was like 10 bucks to move the body from the basement across the street. Now, across the street from this location was an elementary school. Move the body without the head. Correct. They just wanted it out of the drug spot. Right. So think, think about that. The guy who runs the drug spot, you know, let's say the shooting gallery, he's like, you got to get the, you know, we can't have, people can't get high if, if, if the body's down here. Oh, well, gee, yeah, let's talk about, yeah, the creating a proper atmosphere in the ambiance. Hey, look, we want you guys to get high, but we don't want a headless body hanging around here. So who would you pick to do that? Your two best, your two best people, you know, uh, two of the guys that always get high. They've now take a shopping cart, they drag the body upstairs, put it in a shopping cart, wheel it across the street, and what they're going to do is throw it in the elementary school's dumpster. But both of these crackheads, K 
cannot lift the body up. So they can't get it into the dumpster. So they proceed just to put a black paper uh, garbage bag on it and just leave it next to the dumpster. Right, right. So you know what the next day is, right? Oh, yeah, school day. Smell. It's school. It's school. It's the elementary kids come into school, and what do they come across? Hey, there's Johnny in a bag, right? He's just in a black bag. They just see the feet. They let the custodian know. Custodian comes out, and now you have a guy with no head. The, the crime scene gets all set up. The detectives are able to follow the blood trail, find the shopping cart behind the building they killed them in, go down in the basement, and who's sleeping down in the basement? The two guys who tried to dump the body. Right? So within 24, like, you know, you hear the first 48. Within the first 48, they knew who did the homicide. But back in the day, you have to have your witnesses. You have to bring them in. You have to take a statement. Then you have to call the DA's office. The DA's office then has to come down and take a statement. Maybe the DA is busy. Now you have to bring these witnesses down to the DA's office, right? We go through this whole thing. Both of these guys are super heroin guys. So they're so sick 90% of the time that they can't even get through it. The detectives do a phenomenal job. Guys from Brooklyn North Homicide, guys from the squad. They're able to identify all of these witnesses who are all heroin addicts. One of the witnesses is so traumatized after he gives his statement to the DA's office that he goes into a drug rehab for two years. Now, you, you guys are familiar. When you go into the drug rehab, you're gone. Nobody knows where you are. They can't find you. Right? Because it's secrecy, the whole nine yards, right? The case moves along. We understand who the bad guy is. We're actually, they, the, the guys from the squad actually worked this case really hard, but every time they grabbed this guy up, and, you know, in New York, we call it an I card. We drop an I card for somebody. He gets locked up in a different precinct. Now we are keeping tabs on him. Every time that he comes into custody, they cannot find the witnesses because the witnesses are, are homeless junkies, right? When they do find the witnesses, they can't find him. Think, so this is like cat and mouse, right? Like whack-a-mole. You're trying to get them all in the same place, which is extremely hard. I come into the squad. I'm, I'm under the uh, tutelage of uh, the great Lieutenant Tommy Joyce. Uh, I work with the, uh, wait, the greater— Wait a minute. It's this sounds like a paid advertisement. I, I mean, after the after he told the story, I mean, there's nothing more than to, that I can do. But <laughs> what I, what I'll say to you is that, like, I had I I been blessed. I was blessed on NYPD to work with detectives. Again, I, I, I'll shout my old partner Kevin Slag out because he was the craziest person that you could ever possibly work with. But he had a work ethic, and he had a way of communicating with people. That was absolutely outstanding. This was his case. So when I finally came into the homicide shooting team, I got to pick it up and work alongside him as we went. And I have to tell you, when I said to you, we managed the 400 open ones, we had to close six cold cases a year between the two of us. And we, we always hit our number or a little bit more, right? So we, we were, we were pretty active in what we were doing. And in, 
in all of that time on the time we were also doing the federal cases. So, so we were doing, it, it was pretty good. Long story short, we come to find out like, so, you know, my partner moves on, he, he gets, uh, he, he ends up retiring. Now I got this case and what we're able to do is our perpetrator went into federal custody, right? And like, I want to say in the early 2000s, he went into federal custody. And then he disappeared. Nobody knew where he was. We used Acturant to, re, uh, you know, LexisNexis. We used LexisNexis. I swear we rebuilt that neighborhood. We were able to identify witnesses that lived on that block that had never been interviewed by the police. Some of these witnesses were absolutely eyeballs to the whole thing. They lived out of state. They, they were more than comfortable to talk and tell you what, you know, what happened that night, right? The little caveat was, oh, this happened so long ago. You, you'll be, to be honest with you, this is a legend in Brooklyn. Like this, this, this headless guy being his head cut off with a chainsaw was like a legend. So anyway, long story short, we have our perp now who went into federal custody but totally disappeared. He shows up on no public records. Bureau of Prison never shows him leaving federal custody. Why? Any ideas, guys? What happened to him? Uh, he's yeah. either still serving his prison sentence, he died, or he escaped. Negative. He went into, he witnessed. Federal protect, a, witness protection? Yes. He witnessed a corrections officer in Florida beat down and kill an inmate. He became a federal uh, 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 witness. He went into the uh, witness identification program, right? Uh, witness what protection? WITSAC? Yeah. I, yeah. So, so you know when he went into WITSAC that they profit him, right? So now I'm doing the FBI stuff. I'm doing the federal cases, right? Now we're like, oh, wait a second. This guy did a proffer? He had to, right? Because you know how that works. You have to tell everything wrong that you did. Well, you're not covered. Well, you void your proffer. So anyway, we're able to covertly find out that he's still in custody. And we reach out to the oh, U.S. Attorney. Hold on. Hold on. You, said, you used the word covertly. Come on now. It's a lot of different people doing a lot of different favors, right? Because the feds are tight, right? And nobody wants to do anything. But, like, I got all the witnesses now. Like, even the guys who were the, the worst junkies then are all cleaned up now. They're still a mess. But they're in place. So I went down. I, I got these guys re-audio, re-in-front re of the grand jury. We're ready to go. We just have to get our guy. The DA's office wants me to get a statement from him, but we can't still prove that he's in, in federal custody. So I called this U.S. attorney who has his case, and I said, hey, you guys, are, uh, you guys have this guy as a witness. You know what his thing is. Whoa, no, no, you, we don't have a witness. We, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. I go, well, if you did, he cut somebody's head off with a chainsaw back in Brooklyn. I'm sure in the profit, he would have told you that. This guy goes, uh, I'm going to have to make a quick phone call. <laughs> which, is, which is basically the way of saying, no, this is the first time we've heard that. Mm -hmm. So you know who he calls? He calls the perp in the jail. Oh my and says, God. hey, did you fail to tell us about that chainsaw? He goes, how do you know about that? Everybody's dead. And he goes, I don't want to say anything else to you. So they void out his proffer agreement, put him back in general population. <laughs> right? And then we go down and get him. The, 
I got recorded calls because you know the feds do it when they do it, they do it right. But his his jail calls are all about to his family going, you know, all these people that were there that night. Find these people. They, you told me they were all dead. So he's he's trying to manage the case from the inside. What is he? Is he? Is it basically a way of saying go out and put a hit on these guys or what? He's saying that they should never they should never be testifying. So as we started to go out and try and find these witnesses, we would get family members who, an hour after we went and visited them, would call us up and say, "Hey, this guy's family came came to visit us." They, were, they just wanted to make sure we were okay. You know, it's subtle, right? It's it's subtle in the whole in the whole way they did it. Not like so much like where's uh, so and so? Hey, grandma, we just wanted to stop in and see you. Just just to send the message that if it needed to be, we could touch you. And we we ended up getting extraditing him back because you know he had done all his bedtime. So once they released him, we just waited for him. Once they released him, we, we had the marshals bring him back, and then they charged him in Brooklyn with that. They He ended up taking a plea because the DA's office, like you were talking about with Tommy, the witnesses, we weren't really sure if they were going to truly be able to hold up. They were really reluctant to this whole thing because all of their family lived in the neighborhood. Some of the family lived in the same building or next to the, you know what I mean? Like the, the mothers still went to church together. You know, but that one, like what I what I want to, I guess, and and Tommy would would tell you, the guys in the seven nine squad, and and they actually, you know, I consider myself like that. It was the relentlessness, like it never ended, like that hunt when people used to say, "Oh, you're working on my case" or something like that. Oh, we absolutely are. We're pulling your case every, you know, six months just to see if there's anything new. That stuff with the public records that Tommy talked about and why he got hired over there, I'm telling you, we could rebuild a whole neighborhood and find the witnesses that were never spoken to. You couldn't even hide behind the door anymore. We knew you lived there at that point, and we just wanted to come and talk. And you know you know how that starts. And you know, that is the biggest people forget is that when people don't feel safe, they don't want to give information to the police. And without witnesses— you might have physical evidence, but at some point, you guys all know this. You got to have people who are willing to get up on the stand, raise their right hand, and tell you what was going on. DNA evidence is powerful, fingerprint, but it's very powerful to have the actual witnesses themselves to do that. Tommy, you raised your hand. I've never seen anybody raise their hand on this. I before. just, I just figured it out, man. You know, <laughs> you can't well, be trained after all these years. While Mike is yapping away, I got it all figured Wait out. Wait a minute, know? Mike yapping <laughs> away. <laughs> I only wanted to take 10 minutes, Tommy. That's all. <laughs> so I read a book called Headquarters. And it was written by a gentleman. He was an inspector. Um, the equivalent of the chief of detectives at the time. His name was Francis Xavier McCormick. And um, he wrote this book. And I want to say it was published in the 30s. And his time was in the turn of the 20th century. And they talked about, and this is, I'm going to paraphrase, but I think you'll get it. He said, with all of our modern technology, now he's writing this book in the 30s. With all of our modern technology that we have today, criminal investigations still come down to that stool pigeon, and we don't use the word stool pigeon anymore, but they did back then, to some stool 
who's holed up in some hotel room who has everything and knows the whole story. And so I would even go as far as saying to today on August 29, 2022, that with all the DNA and all the forensics and all the technical stuff, you still need people to tell you something they're reluctant to tell you. Never going to go away, ever, ever. Because those are the pieces, the human in the loop part that is going to put all these cases together. So detectives listening right now, I don't care how good you are in the computers. I don't care if you can run a, an Esri Arcs GIS map instead of a pin map back in the day. I don't care if you know DNA and forensics and loci and all of those things. If you don't know how to extract information from people that they're reluctant to give you, you will not solve cases. I went through an FBI course, a guy, one of the original members of the FBI Behavioral Science Unit, he called it Goyacod. You want to solve cases? It's called Goyacod. Get off your ass, knock on doors. So so the, the other part to that is what the I, I and again just just tri- I look at my little guy, he's you know, he's he's young on the job. But I, I give him the same advice that the old timers, some old squad guy, um and his partner, Spado and Danny Comerson, they came downstairs one day and addressed us a roll call as rookies and they said, Listen, every day you're here, you're only here for one reason. You're here to build on the skills for the case that you hope you never catch. And that case is the death of a member of the service. And at that time, whatever role you're in, whether you're a police officer, you're a detective, you're in the crime scene unit, all of your skills are going to be called upon to solve that. Right. It almost sounds like a godfather thing, right? Like, you know, all of your skills are going to be needed to do, you know, what you need to do. And that was so profound when them guys said that. And I used to watch the, the old school detectives come down, sit down, shoot basketballs, you know, buy a six pack for the guys at the, at the uh, part. And they grabbed us and they said, every time you walk down the street, have a conversation with every single person you pass. Every single person. You're on a foot post. Speak to everyone. Stop in the store. Say hello. Every one of those people will be somebody that, you know, you're going to need, you're going to have to be able to do that. And, and to be honest with you, when we spoke to all of these witnesses, you got to remember, I'm showing up in 2008 after these people had thought this guy cut somebody's head off in 1980, you know, 89, 88. Um, they thought that that was behind them. And here I was, their worst nightmare showing up at the door. So I had to build that rapport with them that it was going to be okay, that we were going to be able to do this, that I needed your help, that the family needed your help, that, you know, at, attach a name to the victim, you know, so that we could do all of that, right? Sometimes it worked and sometimes it, it didn't. So, you know, there was a couple of, of them who didn't want to be involved and there was nothing you could do. But, but, but the ones that we had on board that we put back into the grand jury, they would call me directly. Hey, Mike, what's going on? You hear anything? Like, how's this going? What, you know, my, my grandmother said somebody else came to the house. And then we would go over and visit grandma. You know what I mean? Like, and make her feel like she was okay. Um, it was that connection. I don't see that connection anymore because the guys are all knee deep in their phones, right? Like, even sometimes in the interview room, I would sit with guys who were just looking at their phone. Like, like we're that here. That phone ain't going to solve the case, Skippy. I got news for you. I'm going to interrupt right there. Mike, I got to be honest with you. That's on the squad commander. Why is he even allowing phones to be anywhere even near the case when when the stuff is happening? That's crazy. That is crazy to me. Again, the whole thing is, is I remember watching like guys like we would be in the guys would be in the interview room 
and me and my partner would be at the window watching the whole interview. So we would stand for five hours while these guys went. And when they got tired, we would jump in. And when we had a whole line of questioning that we would do, you, you, you know how that works. And, and again, it was just a matter of finding the right, uh, the right way along it. it. I have to tell you, and I, you know, this is just for me in my career. Um, I was able to, I got selected for the hostage negotiation team and that only improved all of the fundamental communication skills uh, because I found myself now ad hoc, you know, we didn't have a separate team. We worked the squad. And then if something happened, they would call you out, but you would go every day in New York city, uh, emotionally disturbed people, EDPs are barricaded and they would call you out to, and I mean, these, these are the hardest people in the, in the world to communicate with. Because they don't rationalize the same way mm -hmm. we do. They don't reason the same way we do. It's very difficult to apply your view of the world to their view of the world. Correct. A hundred percent correct. And, and again, so you would go through the eight to 10 to 12 hour negotiation with somebody who believed that there were flies flying all around. You know what I mean? And I have to tell you, it just made you patient. It made you okay. It made you a better listener. So you were able to do it. And then when you get the guys come into the squad room to the box, because that's I think Tommy says it the best. I want you in the box because I want I don't I don't just want you to confess. I want you to write it out. And then really, I want you to act it out for the DA's office. I want to have such a good report that you feel comfortable enough to stand up and show me how you shook that baby. Show, show, show the DA. Come on. Show, show the DA. how You, you know. I mean, they have kids too. Show, we all get frustrated. And then next thing you know, that guy is banging the baby, you know, the doll's head off the wall. And you're like, it's going to be pretty hard to, it's going to be pretty hard to step away from that video, my friend. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. So, so mm -hmm. and again, I, I just think it, I, I, I think these were the, the cornerstone parts of what, what it was. And then, um, I mean, for me, that case is one of my favorite ones because it's so crazy. Like when you say about the, the, like the chainsaw and stuff like that. But that case, it's more for me about the true, the, the true guys I worked with in the squad. I can't say enough. Kevin Slag worked that case. I, I'm telling you, it was crazy. And then when he left, he was like, you have to work this case. Like it's crazy. And we did, and we were able to close it. And it, it's just a, it's a testament. Um, right. Right. Tom, we were, we were pounding those things out. Yeah, you know, it's, it's so I'll tell you a story that takes you personal on how hard detectives work. Uh, and this goes across the country, um, federal, state, local cops. If you're in it, you're in it. Um, I, won't, I won't shy away from the fact that the job most likely cost me my, my first marriage. Um, I was married to the job. Again, here's a guy who didn't even want to take the test, only did it because I had nothing else to do that day, found out falling in love with it. And, um, and there were other things. I'm not going to pretend that the job was the sole cost of it. Um, however, um, the nights and the weekends and the not being home and the missed you know, holidays and birthdays and all of those things, and then add to that reputations of what cops are and stuff like that. So... Court TV in the early 2000s, we had a serial killer. His name is Vincent Johnson. He killed seven girls in Brooklyn North, a couple in the nine, 90th precinct, a couple in the 7-9. The 7-9 was um, Rhonda Tucker and Katrina Niles were the two girls that we had. And then there was five others, four, three or four in the 9-0 in Williamsburg, and then one more somewhere else. And um, anyway, they 
Court TV was following around Brooklyn North Homicide, doing a documentary type thing at that time. And I'll never forget that while they were filming that, when it actually aired and they were following the, the, the serial killer case that we were working on, the detective was looking out the window and the sun was coming up and, and they had set it up that he had been working for like 16 hours already. And he's like, shit, the sun's coming up. I didn't even get a chance to go to sleep yet. I didn't even get anything to eat yet. And now it's now the sun's come up. It's going to be, I got to get to this person, this witness's house by eight o'clock. And then, and then you see them working through and you, and they really laid out like, these guys and gals lay down for an hour or two, get a little bit of shut-eye. They refuel on cigarettes and coffee, and they're back out with Dorito chips, Chinese food, and they're back at it again, and it doesn't stop, and it never stops, and it keeps going, and it doesn't stop. And my ex-wife looked at me and said, wait, those guys are really working through the night? And I go, yeah. And they're not. And these are guys I work with. These are my friends on TV in front of – and she says to me, I never believed you when you guys said you worked through the night and worked 36 or 72 straight hours and never stopped. I always thought you guys were all running around. And I go, now you tell me this? <laughs> Our marriage is gone, right? But I'll bet you there's tons of police officers who are working in this manner and nobody at home who doesn't understand believes you could have this much energy for what you're doing. Look, man, when it gets going, and Murph, you know this too. Steve, I, I can't imagine anyone would know more than you, Steve. Yeah, it's, well, that's, goes. We, we make a point of telling everybody, being a cop is not a nine to five. It's a, it's a lifestyle. You know, and if you don't have the right family, and and I'm on my second wife, and we've been, thanks to good Lord, we've been married 38 years now. Same here, 35 years going on 36. I'm on number two, too. Mike's the only one in the bunch with a single wife. But I will say you only get married a second time once. So there is that. <laughs> then you're not a, then you're not a divorcee. You're a widower. That's right. That's right. <laughs> anyway. part of that, too, is that, you know, like, yeah, there's the family. But then you also, when you explain to other detectives or who might work in other jobs somewhere else, like, hey, my partner Kevin and I went in for a 4 to 12, right? It's our turnaround. So what that means is we do the 4 to 1, we're off from 1 to 8, and then we come back for an 8 to 4. Well, on that 4 to 1, we're the only two detectives in the squad. First hour, we catch a non-fatal shooting. Third hour, we catch a special category missing. Fourth hour, we catch a homicide. Now we're working into the midnight, right? On the midnight, I catch a homicide. We come in for the day tour. We're the only two detectives that are working in the office that day. Kevin catches another homicide. That's three homicides that we're working. Two detectives. I catch two non-fatal shootings at the end of that. And you, you look outside and you're like, we didn't, I didn't get home. That started on a Friday night. I didn't get home until Wednesday morning. We lived. For those who don't know, on crave cases of White Castle and onion. We had dinner. We had them for breakfast. I, I still today think I still smell like the onion rings uh, from that, <laughs> from that one whole week. Well, so let me just add one thing to give you the sense of, obviously, this is the most extreme 
example you could ever hear in terms of a busy day. But Mike talks about that kind of a day that happens. That's not every day, but it does happen. And then and then you transition to the private sector and people tell you about bad days. <laughs> and I just laugh and I'm like, Are you like, kidding me? I get it. I get it. It's okay. No problem. And I don't say nothing, you know. It's but like, I was like the latte wasn't served correctly. You had to wait an extra five minutes because the highway was backed up. I like I like being after Tommy got me over at Lexus. Um, I like being on the call where they were talking about changing the coloring of the product, like the skin color of the product. And it, this call went on for a couple of hours. And then finally, somebody said to me, hey, Mike, uh, you, you know, you, you used to be out there using it. What do you think? I said, I, don't, I really don't know what to think, because about two weeks ago, I was standing in somebody's living room telling them that their eight-year-old kid was the victim of a, of a homicide. And after that, nobody talked to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the worst day ever is uh, in, ter- in terms of case after case after case is going to be 9-11. And Mike and I uh, are very small contingent of police officers slash detectives uh, that have done something that nobody else in the world can ever claim. Um, And that is looking for a homicide perp on the morning of September 11th, 2001, not finding that person, going to breakfast to get a break, get something to eat. You know, we started like early morning hits to make an apprehension at like four or five in the morning. We struck out. We couldn't find the the murder perp that we were looking for. We go to breakfast. The planes hit on 9-11. We go to the top of, uh, what was it? Th- is it 356 Clausen, Mike? 256 uh, Clausen? 325. 325. 325 Clausen Avenue. And then um, we're standing on top. We see the towers fall. Uh, we then get notified at two o'clock in the afternoon. We're scrambling on the 9-11 related, you know, September 11th, uh, and the, and the planes situation. We're notified that a, that a homicide perp that we arrested in August for killing his, his wife and son, uh, on, um, what was that? 110 Halsey Aziz, um, Chris Gandol's case. And, we're now told that that prisoner who was hospitalized is now available and he's getting discharged from the hospital. So we have to go process him. So we have to run over in the middle of all the 9-11 related activities. We have to go get him, process him. And then we're doing the 9-11 evacuation of the, of the lower Manhattan people that are coming over the bridge in droves and they're coming over the, through the tunnels and however way they're coming over there. They're covered in soot and everything. And 11 o'clock at night, we get notified in our precinct, the 7-9, the only homicide in New York City on September 11, 2001, unrelated to the event. We had to handle a robbery shooting homicide on that night as well. So that's three homicides in the same day, plus 9-11 and everything we did that. And then Mike eventually worked on that case and, and he's uh, – He's a Polish immigrant by the name of Henrik Siwiak, and Mike picked up that case and ran with that for years and years and years. And and I'm looking at the time, and I don't know that you have enough time, but he could give you a, an update as to where that case sits. Well, I think what we're going to do, um, we, we this is kind of a, a good point to kind of bring things to a close because we will bring you back for volume two um, of the Magnus Opus called NYPD, The Exploits of uh, Mike Parade and Tommy Joyce. 
uh, we're going to have to do this again because we cannot do it justice by trying to shrink it down into the time we have remaining. Don't so, rush it. No, because look, the stories are compelling. And look, the 9-11 is a whole thing we want to dive into, but not right now because we've been going on this for three and a half hours now, uh, going on four here pretty quickly. So what I think we do is we bring this one to a close, but what we do is we get your guys' ironclad commitment that we're going to do this again. We'll set it up. We'll do it again like you know we did today. Um, have some drinking going on because obviously that makes it uh, go much faster and much funner. And then we get more stuff out of Tommy that he will neither confirm nor deny, but obviously admit to, like moving the pins on a pin map into the shape of a penis for his commander. I can already see. I can already see it. Sorry. I I I uh, I will not. You, I, it's not a denial. It is not a denial, though, Tommy. I, I can honestly tell you that with some maps that pointed as a penis towards Tommy's head, but I won't say. <laughs> hey, well, this is fun stuff too because, like I said, uh, Tommy uh, done a lot of excellent work on the cold case stuff. Obviously, you're a member of the International Homicide Investigators Association. Proudly a member of that. Love doing that kind of work, um, Mike. Uh, you're going to be on camera next time, you cheap bastard. I am. Just, I am. You go get a camera. Expensive one, too. You know where I'm going to charge out, right, Tommy? Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, look, you need it for client meetings. Don't tell me you don't have client uh, meetings. You'd be surprised. If you if you look around, whether it be LinkedIn or whatever, I'm I'm pretty uh, – I'm Pretty, uh, pretty low-key? Right. Yeah, I'm pretty hard to find out there. Yeah, Mike is stealth. Well, I, I'll find you. By the way – sure, Mark- I'm pretty sure I found you on Google. Oh, you probably did just on <laughs> – hey, Yeah, you I know, mean – Murph and I have a buddy by the name of Billy Sarukas, U.S. Marshal Service. Oh, oh I know Billy very well. Yeah, so you know oh. this too. So Murph and JP were in Chicago doing an event, and Billy, without even being told, tell him Murph. Oh man, we we we're, so we're going we're going to speak at the uh, City Winery in Chicago. So we're staying out next to the to the airport and grab an Uber to bring us in the city. We're getting out of the car, and, and here comes Sarukas going up. Hey, Murph. I said, you know, and it's been a long time since I'd seen him. I'm like, yeah, what's up? <laughs> he tracked us down to the freaking freaking uh, city winery, Chicago, to deliver us some autographed books. Oh my god, that's hilarious! I'm like, dude, man, that's that's pretty so slick. If we want to find you, Mike, I gotta tell you, we're gonna find you. You know what I mean? I have no doubt about that. Okay, you're easy <laughs> to find. You're hiding in your basement. You're not leaving it. We gotta we gotta send you Cheetos. I bet he's yeah. in Virginia somewhere. Yeah. No, he's mm-hmm. in New York. If he was in Virginia, he would be easy to find. Here's a guy that I couldn't understand. He said Times Square or something about that. That's all I know. Yeah, I didn't quit. Tommy quit. He left. But I, I did stayed. quit. I did quit. Yeah. Well, that's a story for another day. So let's do this. Let's bring this to a close. We do want to talk about what you're doing now, but we're going to save that for the next episode because I want this to be part one. Uh, uh, we're going to do tales of the NYPD as told through the eyes of Tommy and Mike. So, um, mm-hmm. Hey, but, but look, but you gave some fantastic stories. One takeaway I want everybody to remember is just remember the relentlessness of both Mike and Tommy about the things they went after, the things they did. And, and you're right, Tommy, you catch, I, I don't want to say a standard homicide, but you catch a homicide. Most people don't see their bed for three days, just on a regular homicide not counting all the other stuff you guys were doing. So for the folks wondering out there, are people committed? Are they dedicated to this job? Dedicated to the point that it costs them their marriages, mm-hmm. but they but you know they, they look at it going, it serves a higher purpose because if not me, who? And if not now, when? So my hat's off to you. And just a whole nother level of respect um, for the guys at NYPD for what you guys did. Oh, we always 
we always love talking to NYPD guys because you guys have some <laughs> unbelievable stories. <laughs> and I tell you what, you know, when you're a cop coming out of town, I mean, it used to be cops looked out, you know, professional courtesy to each other. Not so much around the United States now, but whenever you come to NY to New York, when you go to the Big Apple to visit, if you run into a cop and you tell them, hey, I used to be on the job, you're like part of the brotherhood. I, it's You guys are unbelievable in New York. I love it. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, I, I would say we haven't seen um, all of that all the time, but I'm glad to hear it. And what I will say, and I think Mike can, can attest to this too, and it's the reason why, you know, Morgan, I got to meet you um, years ago and Steve getting to know you recently. Um, and then we have another common friend, Ron Brooks, too. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's a really good friend. And and so and that's another example of having left the police department and got to work with providers and vendors of technology. And I act and I know Mike does the same thing. We act like we're still on the job because our companies that we work for don't always like the things we say because we're massively advocating for the customer first, not the revenue first, right? And I think you win any if you do that, you win anyway because they'll eventually buy from you anyway. But that being said, um, having that ability has given me. I've been in every agency, federal, state, and local. Every state I've been in forty-seven states. I've met the most amazing police officers, men and women, detectives, analysts, whatever. There are some people out there that I sit there and I'm not going to bullshit anybody that I scratch my head and I go, how the hell did they catch anybody? They don't know what the hell they're doing. On the other side of that coin though, is I've met some of the most impressive people in some of the craziest places, cities that you would never think, never even get mentioned, but, but truly dedicated, truly committed, truly amazingly competent people. And it has been a wonderful, wonderful gift to leave the NYPD, travel around the country, even around the world. They've been international on some capers and some customers and, and, and conferences that I've got to meet people. And it truly is the most noble profession. I stand by it. I defy anyone to prove me wrong. It is the hardest job in the world to do. I'm not military, notwithstanding. That's a different conversation. But as a job, as a profession, it's the hardest job in the world where you get the least amount of support and the least amount of tools and the least amount of training to do the most important job you can. Absolutely. And I will tell you, I had a chance to talk to a Green Beret who's now a congressman, a guy named Mike Waltz. But when I told him what I used to do, he said, look, he said, look, the difference between you and us, we might be downrange for a year, 18 months. You guys are living this day in and day out, 20 years, you know, and stuff. So it, it takes a different kind of toll. There's tolls and there's different kind of tolls. And, and you're right. So, but hey, look, we want to um, we want to conclude by folks can't see this, but this is me saluting both you, Tommy and Mike. Um, you guys get our undying respect for what you guys did. But but I'll tell you, for me, what's what's important is when you hear the sincerity, when you hear the passion that they still have after all of these years for the cases, for the victims, they know the names, they know the locations and stuff. What does mm -hmm. that tell you? Somebody who didn't care would go, hey, wasn't there this one case one time? You guys are specific about people, places, times, dates, things like that. It shows that you care. And this is just me saying, thank you for your service there. I'm telling you, I can reach into a basket right on my desk right now and pull out copies of paperwork and DD5s and stuff that we it, it just never stops. Never ends. Yeah. Honor to have you guys on the show. Thank you both oh. for being here. All right. Well, Steve, so this last wrap-up – I'm sorry, Mike. Go ahead. 
No, it was just, it was an honor and a privilege. And, and everything that you say, um, you know, Tommy has given me the opportunity to work in the corporate side of the world. And again, we never forget the people that we served with, right? So every presentation we do, we recognize the guys killed in the line of duty. We recognize the guys who lost their life to suicide. We, we home that message home every single day, every single presentation. Amen, so, brother. Excellent. I thank you for what you do. Yeah. All right. So don't you, don't any of you guys go anywhere. We got one quick drinking thing to talk about. Everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. Say what you want, but man, the, the, we could have gone on for six hours, 10 hours. I mean, there, there were just stories after stories. And some of the famous names, some of the rappers they talk about that they worked on, the cases, the homicides. And I thought it was pretty instructive, too. Tommy was very, very um, um, direct about this, too. I mean, you can tell it affected him. When you think about the number of people in the rap business today that got their start based on homicides, robberies. Uh, other stuff like that. Uh, it just, I mean, anyway, just a lot of good stories and a lot of great work, especially the cold cases they talked about. I mean, just the years that they worked on some of these things and and how they went back on that one case, just years and solved the stuff. So just kudos to those guys for a job well done. Exactly. I agree with you hundred percent there. The, just think if you're the family member of a victim of a murder and it hasn't been solved, how would you feel? But then you find out that you've got these heroes out there, that these unsung heroes whose job it is is to not just forget about it and put it in a file cabinet and, oh, it was never solved. These guys are still pursuing the murderers of your loved one. I mean, actual true heroes, true Americans in action. You just heard their stories. Phenomenal. Our hats are off to them. And just thank you so much, Tommy and Mike, for coming on the show here. You brought a new era to this that that this is the first we've done like this. So. Loved having you guys on the show. Hope to have you back in the future. Yeah, uh, trust me, we, it'll be easy. They got more stories, and uh, Tommy and I got more <laughs> drinking to do. Uh, we're going to get Mike on camera this next time, so Good no, luck. no, no, getting away from this. Anyway, so guys, let us bring this then to a close. We appreciate it once again. Again, share it with the family. Bring the family together. Head on over to Apple, Spotify. Hit those five stars. It's a magical thing for the family. The kids learn a lot from doing this. Trust me, it will make them better citizens, better people. Just gone over there. Hit those five stars. Also, head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for more information about the show. We update it all the time. Also, follow us on social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes uh, Podcast on Facebook, and that thing called the Instagram. Also, make sure you go over to the Game of Crimes fan group. Just go to Facebook and search for Game of Crimes fans. Uh, the Mafia Queen herself, Sandy Salvato, will anoint you. She will wave her hand over you. If you could just even get answer a couple questions, just even in the ballpark, put blue, red, green. Just say <laughs> Morgan said blue, you know, uh, and just just look, give it a shot. Give it a shot, and you'll uh, you'll agree. Also, PayPal.com. Use our email, Game of Crimes Podcast at gmail.com or PayPal.me slash Game of Crimes. Whatever makes it easier for you to help support the show. But Steve, let's let's end up with saying what people ought to do. What what uh, what should they do? What's the absolute thing they need to do before Christmas and share one, tell one with everyone they know? Absolutely. Come over and check us out on Patreon. And you know what? Since Christmas is only what, three, four months away now? Close enough. Yeah. What what better Christmas gift than giving somebody a yearly subscription to our Patreon channel where you hear all this extra content? You'll hear the Q&A. You'll hear us go through a law enforcement movie once a month, and, and we'll do the Narcometer rating on it. We have You Can't Make the Shit By the way, that's patented. Up. Can't use that without the permission of Ricky Bobby Inc. That's patented. Ricky Bobby. <laughs> he's not from West Virginia, in case you were wondering. 
Um, it's just, we've got so much content on there. You're guaranteed to be entertained. There's an opportunity for you to come on and ask us questions, whatever you want to ask us, we'll do our best to answer them. It might not be the truth, but we'll make crap up and you'll love it. So, and you won't know the out. difference because we don't know the difference. We can't remember. So, <laughs> yeah, so, Hey guys, but no, really, we appreciate you guys helping us supporting the show. Share one, tell one, let your friends know what you're listening to. Let them know it's over on game of crimes where you get the most authentic, the most real stories that are out there. And if this isn't a proof of it, I don't know what is because this was the real deal this week. So anyway, I end by saying once again to you players out there, thank you once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all and New York state of mind, Game of Crimes. (laughs) 